been around for a while. Uh, we have been in Romans, and we're taking a break from Romans. They're telling me to turn this thing on. Excuse me just a second. I think my battery's dead. So you all are going to have to have good memories. That's just the way it's going to have to be. We, um, we've been in Romans, but we're taking a break for a few weeks, and this is Palm Sunday, and we want to look at this passage uh, in Mark's Gospel. So let me read it, and I'll pray, and, and then we're going to, going to spend a little time in it. Mark chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. This is God's word. He gives it to us because he loves us. Let's pray and ask God himself to help us understand it. Lord, please do come by your spirit. Take your word. Make it live somehow. Make it live. Drill it into our hearts. Lord, may we not go away from this place, this time and this place, without seeing your Son, Jesus, more fully, I pray, than we've ever seen him before. Please do this by your grace. Through the power of the Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So I mentioned there are uh, accounts of the entrance of Jesus into the city in each of the four Gospels, but Mark's, interestingly enough, is the most layered, if you will, of all of those accounts. There, there are so many significant allusions 
to the Old Testament. There are so many metaphors and pictures that are woven into this story. Um, if you want to stay until 2 o'clock, we can, we can get to all of them. But, but in the next you know, minutes, we, we can't possibly pull all of this apart and, and, and see how marvelously and wonderfully this tapestry is woven together. Some of you remember from several months ago an illustration that I used. Um, frankly, I don't even remember what uh, we were talking about, if we were in Romans or if we were taking a break from Romans on that occasion. But the illustration was the illustration of this, um, this computer-generated art form, if you will, that was popular back in the late 80s or early 90s. And, and you know, you'd see this poster, and it would just be these wavy lines and things, and it just looked like wavy lines. And then you'd see people standing around it, and they'd look at these wavy lines, and someone said, would say, do you see it? Do you see it? And you'd look a little closer and a little more intently and try and focus on the thing. And then suddenly you would see it and there would be dolphins that would be leaping out of this poster at you. Dolphins frolicking in the ocean. You remember those things? Well, this passage is a little bit like that. There's all, there are dolphins in this passage. There are dolphins in this passage. And what I'd like for us to try and do is, is see the dolphins. And, and it's tough to see the dolphins. Again, if you think about what precedes this passage, it's very, very instructive. You know, in the, in the original, there weren't chapter and verse divisions, and sometimes those chapter and verse divisions get in the way, and they disrupt the flow and continuity of things, and you have to disregard them. This is one of those cases. You think about what precedes this. What precedes this immediately, just before Jesus' entry into the city, is Jesus telling his disciples three times that he's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to be betrayed, he's going to be condemned, and he's going to be executed. And what happens next is that James and John say, we want to sit on your right hand and on your left hand when you come in your glory. I mean, there's a complete disconnect in the heads of these guys. You see, they don't see it. And then the next thing that happens is that Jesus performs the last miracle that he performs before he comes into the city, which is the healing of blind Bartimaeus. Now, what do you suppose is the significance of that? It's interesting. Jesus says the same thing to Bartimaeus that he had said to James and John. What do you want me to do for you? James and John wanted glory. Bartimaeus wanted to be able to see. Because he couldn't see, and neither could James and John. And that's what I want. I want us to be able to see what's here. That's why I pray for the Spirit of God to help us see. And, and there are three things here, three things we don't want to miss. Because if we miss these three things, we'll miss our one great hope. Three things we don't want to miss. We don't want to miss the true nature of Messiah's kingship. That's what verses 1 through 11 are about. The second thing, we don't want to miss the reason for Israel's existence at all. That's in verses 12 to 14. And the third thing we don't want to miss is the purpose of the temple. And that's in verses 15 through 18. We don't want to miss these things. The true nature of the kingship of Jesus, the true reason for Israel's existence and the true purpose of the temple. So first, the nature of Messiah's kingship. Let me give it to you. What is the nature? What is the real nature of the kingship of the promised Messiah? It is not to purge the land of an alien 
power. The true nature of Messiah's kingship is not to purge the land of an alien power, but to reconcile an alienated people. That's the true nature of Messiah's kingship. That's why a warrior king was promised. That's why he was sent, not to remove the problem of Rome, but to remove the problem of sin. He comes not to remove an alien power, but he comes to reconcile an alienated people. Now, I know you've had a snoot full of this as we've made our way through the first three chapters of Romans, but our real problem is not out there. My real problem is not out there. My real problem is here. It's in here. It's the core problem for human beings. It is the problem of sin and the alienation from God that results from sin. The Jews thought that Rome was the problem. The Jews thought that the world would be a better place if they were gone. The Jews waited for the coming of a king or a surgeon, if you will, who would eradicate the cancer from the land, get rid of the alien power, and the problem goes away. When the king comes, he will purge the land of the alien power, and all will be right with the world. That's what they thought. You read the commentaries. You can read the the. The, the surrounding literature, that's what they thought. That's what they, they had. They wanted that. There are plenty of promises in the Old Testament referring to a king who would come and who would vindicate righteousness and who would deliver righteousness into the whole heaven and the whole earth. It's all there in the Old Testament. But the Jews just, frankly, had lost sight in the way that we can lose sight of the fact that they, too, were the problem. Remember G.K. Chesterton's response to the New York or the, the, the Times of London, the Times editorial back at the turn of the 20th century? This big editorial in the Times of London. The, the title of the article was What is Wrong with the World? And Chesterton wrote back. Remember what he wrote back? He wrote this lengthy, lengthy response to the Times of London. What is wrong with the world? I am. I am. The Jews had lost, lost sight of that. Now, let's not be too hard on the Jews again. Let's think about our own day. I mean, really, folks, I'm challenged by this, okay? I'm not tossing something at you that I'm not challenged by myself. I think we're being challenged here to think and to think deeply and to reflect seriously about the nature of the world in which we live and the nature of the work of this king who rides into Jerusalem in fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, on this donkey's colt. Let's think about ourselves. Let's think about the recent health care warfare. Whatever side of the aisle you're on in this thing, whatever side of the aisle those legislators were on with respect to this thing, each side believes that the other side is the problem. Each side believes that the other side is the problem. And each side believes that if only we could get rid of the other side, the world would be a better place. 
the world would be a better place. Personalize it. Distill it down. Distill it down to interpersonal relationships. Let's not generalize it. Let's not make it a political thing. But let's make it a matter of personal relationships with a spouse, with a child, with a neighbor, with a work associate. The problem is always over there, isn't it? If only my husband would, if only my wife would, if only my child would, if only my parent would, then the world would be a better place. Then the world would be a better place. That's what the Jews in the main believed, and and that is what we so easily can lapse into as we think about these things. But what does the king come to do when the king comes? There is a king who is promised. I'll just give you some passages. 1 Samuel 7, verses 12 to 16, the first promise made to David. When your days are fulfilled, I will raise up your offspring after you, and I will establish his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. Your throne shall be established forever. They had this expectation of a king. It's what they wanted. I mentioned Zechariah 9.9. When this king comes, he comes in fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's coming righteous and having salvation with him, humbly and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. He comes in fulfillment of it. The people see it and they start to shout. What do they shout? They shout Hosanna, which means save us, save us. Save us from what? What were they thinking? Save us from Rome. Save us from Republicans. Save us from Democrats. Save us from a bad spouse. Save us from him. Save us from her. Save us from them. A king who comes who comes to redeem and deliver from a cruel oppressor. But here's the thing that they missed. See, it's, it's just a real dangerous thing. There's a principle here. It's a real dangerous thing to lift one verse or one passage out of the context of the whole. You've got to read the whole thing. You can't just read 1 Samuel 7 or Jeremiah, uh, Zechariah 9.9. 9. You've got to go on to Zechariah 12, verse 10. Here is the king. He comes riding into Jerusalem in fulfillment of this prophecy, and there is just a ton of symbolism that is there, theological symbolism, picking up all kinds of images from the Old Testament. But you've got to have Zechariah 12, 10 in mind as well. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and a spirit of pleas for mercy. And then get this, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. That's in Zechariah also. The king who rides into the city is the king who will be lifted up, the king who will be pierced, the king upon whom people will look. That part of the prophecy is fulfilled as well. 
And what God says that he will do is pour out upon the witnesses of this event a spirit of grace, a spirit which will incline them to cry out for mercy, to cry out for deliverance, not from Rome, but to cry out for deliverance from themselves. I need mercy. And the king of glory who has created everything, who upholds everything and sustains everything, himself submits to piercing so that those who would gaze upon him, those who would look up to him, being given a spirit of grace, a spirit of pleas for mercy, would receive from him the mercy that they need. The king comes not to purge an alien people from the land. The king comes to reconcile an alienated people to God. That is why the king comes. And it's all there. It's all there in Zechariah. It's a very subtle thing. And again, I just want to ask you to to reflect on these things through this week. There's a very subtle but very significant thing that happens in verses 7 and 8 of this text. When the disciples bring the colt to Jesus, you see what they do? They take off their cloaks. They take off their outer garments. And they put those outer garments on the back of a colt. And the people spread their garments on the road for the colt to walk on. And they spread palm branches and grasses and other things. And they create this, this pathway for this colt which bears Jesus to walk on. Why do they do that? Why do they do that? Why is there a red carpet treatment? Why is there a red carpet at the Academy Awards? Why is there royal treatment for kings and queens? Because royalty is above us, right? And we don't want royalty to be contaminated by donkeys. And we don't want royalty to be contaminated by dirt on a road. But donkeys and dirt don't contaminate the king of glory. The king of glory created the donkeys and the dirt, and the donkeys and dirt have always done what donkeys and dirt do. Donkeys do what donkeys do, and dirt does what dirt does. Donkeys and dirt have never raised the fist of defiance in the face of their creator and said, never, ever will I submit to you. When this king comes into the world... He doesn't come to be treated as royalty. He doesn't come with a buffer separating him, the clean and pure one, from what is unclean and impure. He actually comes into the world as a king who will take all of that impurity and all of that uncleanness upon himself. Think in the Gospels of all of the times Jesus touches or is touched by what should not be touched. The leper in Mark 1, the woman with the flow of blood in Mark 5, the dead girl in Mark 5, the dead boy in Luke 7, the ten lepers in Luke 17, the sinful woman in Luke 7, 
always Jesus gladly, gladly is embracing and being embraced by what is unclean. This is the nature of his kingship. He comes not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He comes not to purge the nation of an alien power, but to reconcile an alienated people. And he does it by taking our uncleanness to himself and suffering and dying. And then second, the Jews missed the reason for their existence. We've got to do this so quickly. What is this fig tree thing all about? Well, you, as Jesus did on this occasion, you go to a fig tree or any other fruit tree to get nourishment from it. You go to any fig tree, any fruit tree, to get nourishment from it, to derive life from it. A fruit tree is a living thing. We've talked about this in several settings. You take any fruit tree, and the wonder of the blessing of God on any fruit tree is that that one fruit tree doesn't produce one piece of fruit, but it produces multiple pieces of fruit, and in that piece of fruit, any one of them are multiple seeds from one tree. You could populate the whole of the earth with fig trees, with pear trees, with apple trees. If the circumstances are right, if the soils are right, if the rainfall is right, if the sunshine is right, you can populate the whole earth with trees to feed the whole world. The fig tree is a picture of Israel. Israel existed not to be cordoned off from the nations, not to be separated from the nations. Israel existed to be light and life for the nations. That is why she existed. Read Deuteronomy chapter 4. Verses 5 through 8. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? What was Israel to be in the midst of the nations? Not a nation that was barricaded off from the nations, not a nation that had cut itself off from the nations. Israel was to be the source of light and life in the midst of the nations. Israel was to be the nation that gave birth according to the original promise made to Adam and Eve and then enlarged to Abraham in chapter 12. Israel was to be, of Genesis, was to be the nation that gave birth to the author of life, the one who is the source of light. Israel was to give birth and give rise to the light in the midst of the nations. But here's the great tragedy of what happens when the true light and the true life comes into the city. 
the true fruit of the vine, the true fruit of the fig tree. That light is extinguished. That life is condemned and executed. The nation, the nation lost sight of its purpose. Folks, let's, let's just remember that we are the people of God, that we are the Israel of God. Let's remember. Let's be instructed. Let's not forget that we don't exist to be cordoned off from the world around us. We don't exist to be barricaded off from the world around us. The light and life having come into the world, the source of life, the fruit of the vine, the fruit which is Jesus, the true fig tree, the true vine planted by the Father, now has been raised to newness of life and he has given that life to his church, imparts it, sustains it, and that life is the life of the world. That life is the life of the world. It's really interesting, and this leads into the fourth or the third point. It's really interesting that there were signs placed. There were signs placed around the temple. There is archaeological, historical evidence for this. Signs placed around the temple, one of which read this, no foreigner is to enter within the forecourt and the balustrade around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. If you're a foreigner, you're now welcome here. It's interesting in Mark's gospel that after Jesus has come into the city, this is one of those details that's unique to Mark's gospel. After Jesus has come into the city in verse 11, he goes into the temple and he looks around. He looks around. And as he looks around, as he looks into the temple and looks around, the commentators will tell you the word that's used, the verb that is used is not a casual verb. He is scrutinizing what he sees. He is scrutinizing what he sees. When he comes into the temple, what he sees is a temple which has become a national shrine, but not a home, not a home for aliens, for strangers, for the broken for the needy. The passage that Jesus refers to in verse 17 is taken from Isaiah 56. I'll tell you, I read this verse, these verses, it was two or three years ago, and I swear to you, until two or three years ago, they were not in my Bible. Two or three years ago, they began to live for me. This verse that Jesus cites, my house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations, comes from Isaiah 56 in the first eight verses. Listen, listen to it. Thus says the Lord God, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this 
and the Son of Man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, who keeps his hand from doing any evil. And then verse 3, let not the foreigner. You remember the sign that was posted by the temple? No foreigner is to enter within the forecourt and the balustrade around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds my covenant fast, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Jews of Jesus' day had lost sight of the true nature of his kingship, that he king comes not to purge the land of an alien people, but to reconcile an alienated people. They had lost sight of the reason for their existence. They didn't exist as an end in themselves, but they existed to be the means by which God would rescue the nations, and they had lost sight of the true meaning and significance of the temple. It is a place for reconciliation. It is a home for eunuchs, for aliens, for foreigners. It is a place for the broken and the needy. When Jesus comes into Jerusalem, views the temple, curses the fig tree, and then cleanses the temple, what he is doing, in fact, is executing is executing a pronouncement of judgment against what was partial because what is partial can never be what only the fulfillment can be Jesus is the true fig tree Jesus is life and Jesus is the temple Jesus is the one who welcomes, who receives the lame, the alien, the leprous. And if you read 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, you will see Peter picking up this imagery, not of a stone temple, not of a dead temple, not of something that doesn't move and has no life in it but a true and living temple as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but precious and chosen in the sight of God. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, the true temple, the only temple, the temple of Jesus, 
And we now together by his grace and because his father has done what he said he would do in Zechariah 12, he has poured out a spirit, a spirit of grace, which inclines us to seek mercy because the father was faithful. We now, aliens, foreigners, eunuchs, the leprous, the lame, the impure, the unclean, we, by his grace, are being built up into a dwelling place for God to inhabit. You know, I've been reading through the major prophets. I've been reading through Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel. You know what you get to when you get to the end of Ezekiel? You get a picture of the new temple. And you know what the last words, the last words of Ezekiel's prophecy are? And the name of the city from that time on shall be, the Lord is there. You are it. You are it. The temple, the city, the place God is pleased to inhabit forever and ever. Do you need a home? Do you need a home? Do you feel like an alien, a stranger? Do you feel unclean, impure? Do you need a home? This is the home. Jesus. The true temple. Where living stones are built into an eternal habitation for the one true God. So let's not miss the purpose for Jesus coming as king. Let's not miss the reason for our existence as a people. And let's not miss that we are the fulfillment in and through Jesus of the temple. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. Thank you so much that you've accomplished what you set out to accomplish. And I do so pray for each of my friends here, for myself and for each of my friends here, that we would see and truly know that we have a home, a place where you are pleased to receive aliens, strangers, the unclean and the impure, that we might be built up into a holy habitation where your name and presence will dwell forever. Lord, fill our hearts with gratitude for what you have accomplished, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. We'll sing number 235. All glory, laud, and honor to thee, Redeemer King, which saved this Palm Sunday hymn for the end of the service, not the beginning, so we can 